you guys. My name's John. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, we are actually kicking off a brand new series this morning called Open Heaven. Somebody say, Open Heaven. Yeah. We're talking 1 Corinthians. It's also the kickoff of the NFL season. So had to rep the Miami Dolphins. Okay, I see the hurricane signs. Yeah, y'all, y'all did your thing. That was good. The Hurricanes had a good game. FSU and UF beat a high school team, so that's good too. Um, Matter of fact, why don't we stand to our feet? I'm gonna give context for the series after, but I wanna read the passage first, all right? So stand to your feet wherever you're watching, online, Guyana, get a little spiritual calisthenics here, and uh, we're gonna read the text. I know you guys were just standing up, and now you're sitting down, it's like spiritual musical chairs, all right? You'll thank your Fitbit. Um, 1 Corinthians 1, I'm gonna start in verse one, and if you're ready, let's say, let's do this. All right. Paul called by the will of God to be an apostle of Jesus Christ, I'll explain, and our brother Sosthenes to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus. You're like, that's me, that is you. He's writing to you too. He says, both our Lord and uh, grace to you, verse three, and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Matter of fact, once you turn to your neighbor, say grace to you and peace. Grace to you and peace. That's a great greeting. Paul says, I give thanks, verse four, to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given to you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about the Messiah was confirmed among you so that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful. Can I get an amen? by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Would you join me as we pray? Jesus, we love you. You're amazing. You're incredible. All of these songs that we sang about you are absolutely true and barely scratch the surface of your goodness, your nearness, your mercy, your love. So Lord, we look to you in faith and Lord, on behalf of the Miami Dolphins fan base who have suffered so long, God, you said, blessed are those who mourn for they will be comforted. God, would you please have mercy on us? Because we know it's gonna take a miracle. In Jesus' name, all God's people said, amen. Turn to your neighbor, give him a high five. You can find your seat. You're like, can you pray about football? The Bible says pray about all things, okay? I'm just being biblical, very biblical. You ever found yourself in the middle of a mess? Parents, you know what I'm talking about. Can I get an amen on this one? You ever found yourself in the middle of a mess? My wife, Nancy, and I have two beautiful Jew Rican babies, two children that we love. I'm from a Jewish background. My wife is Puerto Rican. And, and our kids have a supernatural gift. I'm telling you, it has to be supernatural. We'll work on cleaning their room and, and they, they sleep in the same room now, they share the same room, it's so cute. As long as it lasts, we'll enjoy it uh, or somewhat enjoy it. And so they're, they're sleeping in the same room. And so we'll take a morning, an afternoon and we'll clean the room meticulously and it looks amazing and we feel so great. And then it's time for nap time or quiet time, whichever one we can get in on that given day. And I'm telling you, I would love to see the math equation on this. Like amount of effort and time it takes to clean a room versus the amount of time and effort it takes to absolutely destroy a room. Y'all know what I'm talking about? Like from clean to chaos in 2.7 seconds. How? 
blows my mind. It's supernatural. I think it's from the devil, actually, is what I think. I'm pretty sure it's demonic opposition against the people of God. It will not be that. All rooms will be clean in heaven. I just know it. They're gonna be self-cleaning. It's gonna be amazing. Some of you are like, I got what I needed from church. Come on, Maranatha, come Lord Jesus. But it's wild. And, and when I think about this church and this culture of Corinth, I need y'all to understand something from the jump. They are a mess, an absolute mess. Like kids do your worst. It doesn't even scratch the surface. Corinth is a mess. Corinth is a city in Greece, in South Central Greece. In the ancient world, they would have been one of the uh, superpowers. They would have been one of the larger cosmopolitan cities. If you picture modern day, a little bit of Miami meets LA meets Amsterdam, that is Corinth. Corinth was a bedrock of culture and especially immorality. Corinth would have said to most of the cities in the ancient world, y'all think you could run away from the commands and precepts of God, hold my, and they would say beer because they were doing all of the things. They would say, watch what we're gonna do. And Corinth was, it was a superpower for immorality. That was Corinth. In fact, so much so that Corinth in the ancient world became synonymous for immoral living and immoral lifestyles, for pursuing any pleasure that the human heart found and desired. In fact, they invented a verb, it was so much so. True story, the verb was corinthiazo, corinthiazo. If you would corinthianize something, it's like, man, you put as much immorality to that thing as you could possibly do. It was, there was, it was spiritually all over the place. There was prostitution. There was an obsession with money and status and appearance. Does this sound like any culture you've ever maybe heard of before in the world? I know this is an ancient story, but it is absolutely applicable to modern people, especially modern North Americans and the Guyanese as well. The context is so appropriate because the city, the culture of Corinth is a mess, running against God's commands and precepts in every way possible and inventing some. And the church was reflective of the mess as well. That one hurts. So we're introduced to the characters. We'll start in verse one. Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle. How many of you have heard of Paul before, the apostle Paul? You remember his story before he was apostle Paul, the prolific planter of churches all throughout the New Testament, penned over two thirds of the New Testament. He was Saul, the religious terrorist. He would literally go around and hunt down and murder followers of Jesus, crazy. And then he has this encounter with the grace of God and he becomes the apostle Paul. Now this word apostle, it means sent one. Paul was, if you, If you're familiar with entrepreneurship, this is like the spiritual entrepreneurship of the kingdom. Paul was the apostle who planted the church in Corinth. If you've ever started a business, you know all the blood, sweat, and tears you pour into it. Paul planted this church in Corinth. If you're wondering where the action takes place, if you go to Acts chapter 18, the book of Acts, you can read about how the church in Corinth started. By the way, we'll be in this series for a few months, so it might be a great thing to do in your microchurches. It might be a great thing to do to maybe do a a reading plan in your microchurches to go through the book of Corinthians since we'll be studying it together. But Paul is the apostle who planted this church. He started the church. He stayed there for about 18 months. Now we're introduced to another character in the beginning. His name is Sosthenes. Everybody say Sosthenes. 
If you're wondering what to name your kid, I don't know if you wanna pick that one because it's kind of hard to say and spell. But anyways, he was the ruler of the synagogue in Corinth where Paul rolled up. There were Jewish people spread all throughout the modern world in the diaspora. Sosthenes was the ruler of the Jewish synagogue. He actually initially listened to Paul and then opposed Paul to the extent that he tried to get Paul thrown in prison But God, the plan backfired. He ended up getting beaten and it absolutely was a failure. And we don't really know exactly what happened, but most Bible scholars and historians believe that Paul and these first followers of Jesus came to Sosthenes, the enemy who tried to get them thrown in jail and in the midst of his point of suffering probably came to him and did practice what they had preached. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. We don't know exactly what happened, but we know at this point he has become, the one who opposed has now become a follower of Jesus called out in the letter. That'll preach. Some of you are like, my kid is too far gone. Look at God. He says, it's me and Sosthenes. We're in this thing together and we're writing you this letter. Now, Corinth, as a culture, as a people, it was messed up. They were lost. They were running away from God with track shoes on in every way they can imagine. And unfortunately, the church was no exception. The church is an absolute mess as well. In fact, as you read through Paul's letters to these different churches that are called epistles, we find that the church of Corinth, they're probably the most messed up group of Christians you could find in the Bible. Maybe close with the Galatians, but other than that, they are an absolute hot mess. Like they're, they're Christians, but really bad ones. If you're like, oh, that's like me. Okay, well, you find yourself here. Welcome to the church at Corinth. They're a mess. And yet, Paul says this, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be, what does it say? Wow. Imagine you at your worst and you know it and someone walks up to you and you know that they know it and they say, what's up, saint? Who are you talking to? He says, called to be saints. He begins saying, you're sanctified, meaning you're set apart by God's grace and his goodness. You are called to be saints, totally imperfect, absolutely flawed, but still, but still God's people. Now, some of us come from a a Catholic background. Within the Catholic tradition, saints are those who by their good virtue and lifestyle have achieved a certain status. Contrasted biblically with the Corinthians here and throughout the trajectory of the New Testament, according to the scripture, we are not saints because of what we have done, but because of what he has done. How you doing, saints? Yeah, it's beautiful. He he says, listen, and and this is incredible. I wanna set the scene here because we'll get into this letter. There is some crazy stuff in this letter. Like there will be a lot of mess to clean up. There will be loads of problems to address. There will be all sorts of corrections to bring, errors to correct, all sorts of apologies and repentance that will need to happen. But before Paul rebukes and corrects what they must do, he will emphasize what he has done. This is parenting and discipleship gold. I hope you're taking notes right now. Here's my core thought. I'm gonna unpack it as we move through this first sermon in the series. The gospel, the good news of the message of Jesus is not simply moral advice of what we should do, but it's an eternal announcement of what he has done. 
The gospel is not just moral advice of what we should do. That's often the trap of religion. Well, you know you should and you better and you need to. It is an announcement of what he, Jesus, has done. And into this mess of a culture and this mess of a church, God uses Paul to deliver his message. His message. Paul begins his message to this mess in a surprising way. You ever burst into your kid's room and you know they're doing wrong? And look how he starts, verse three. Grace to you and peace from God. From our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul begins what will ultimately become a word with lots of strong correction with a blessing and a reminder of some of the most powerful fundamental truths of God's kingdom. He reminds them that the work of Jesus has accomplished something. The work of Jesus has secured a victory. The work of Jesus has changed, established uh, a status. It has established access. By dinner on Good Friday, approximately 33 AD, scripture tells us that the veil in the temple was torn. You're like, that sounds great, I guess. I don't know what that means. It's this seemingly obscure theological tidbit that has powerful ramifications for every single modern human then and now. Why? Because humans were created, you and I were created, watching online, you were created to be in close relationship with God. And then sin came into the picture. Sin is anything that runs contrary to God's word and his ways as revealed in the scripture that, by the way, he gives for our flourishing, not to spoil our fun. Sin creates a division between humanity and God. Then Jesus steps on the scene and he undid what Adam did in creating the division and then the veil, it says in the scriptures, in the gospels, the veil in the temple representing the veil between God and humanity, heaven and earth was torn in two and the realities of heaven have begun to be available now. Ahorita, en este momento, right now. We're not just waiting like, man, this culture, man, Corinth going to hell in a handbasket. But someday I'm going to get to heaven. Jesus said, no, 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 this is how you want to pray. On earth as it is in, they're available now. Now it's only partial, and we'll see Paul talk about this later in the letter. It's only partial. It's like seeing dimly through a mirror. It's like you get out of the shower and it's all foggy. You can kind of see the general reflection, but you can't see it fully yet. But the kingdom is at hand. Eternal life has begun. Jesus says it like this, this is eternal life, to know God. Now the tragedy that we see in the life of these Corinthian Christians is how low they have settled comparative to what God has designed and established for them. Which by the way is the same tragedy that we experience as modern humans in our very moment. How low we often settle relative to what God desires for us. Joy is untasted, pleasures untouched, glories bypassed, gifts unopened, destinies untapped. We have lived functionally often as if heaven was closed and the doors and the keys have been lost and forgotten and yet the gospel and the good news of the message of Jesus opens heaven. Heaven is open. On earth, Jesus said, as it is in heaven. He said, John, you've tossed out this word gospel a bunch. What exactly is the gospel? We use this word in church, it's almost Christianese, and if we're not careful, it loses its potency. The gospel, literally, it's evangelio, it means the good news. It's good news, but the gospel is rightly 
articulated as, as what we usually emphasize. Jesus, he came in the flesh. He was born of a virgin. He lived a perfect life. He died a brutal death on the cross. He was buried and he rose on the third day. But how many of you know the gospel does not end there? What we rightly emphasize as the atonement of Jesus, this is another good theological word, meaning he covered our sins and transgressions and what separated us from God. What we rightly emphasize as the atonement is not actually the zenith of the story because after the atonement, we then get the enthronement. I like that word, where Jesus goes and he sits at the right hand of the Father and he says, listen, now I'm making intercession for you. Greater works than these I will do. The gospel reveals a kingdom and a king who has made that kingdom available starting now. There is now an open heaven. When you, when I, when we cross that line of belief, when we stop being our own leader and forgiver and we say, Jesus, I've screwed up my life enough, it's yours, I surrender, I'm yours, you have it. When we cross the line of faith to surrender, the power of the king's kingdom comes into my real life, in my real world, and begins to renovate everything it touches, or at least everything I allow it to touch. And that's what 1 Corinthians is all about. That's what this letter, that's what this letter to this broken church in the midst of a broken culture, that's what this letter is all about. It's us allowing the gospel, the king and his kingdom to touch and transform every single aspect of our lives. Now, the Corinthians are a fascinating case study. On one hand, they are this church of absolute spiritual potency. We'll see these miracles and signs and wonders and the power of God is on display through the Corinthians. And yet often they did not, while they allowed the power of God to, to move in their lives in these gifts, they had not allowed the power of God to touch their character and they're a hot mess. I mean, immorality, bad theology, lack of love. They've got all of these things. And, and on one hand, it's a challenge for some of us in one camp. And yet on the other hand, some of us have experienced the flip side of the reality. Maybe we were raised in denominational traditions. Maybe we've grown up in certain sectors. Maybe you grew up in charismania where it was like, man, let the juice loose, check your brain and Bible at the door. And it was all of the, all of the things and none of the comprehension and so we've overcorrected to say, man, we're all about the fruit of the spirit and the character that God wants to hand, but we, we haven't done anything with the power of God that he wants us to walk in. And the message of Corinthians is you actually need, you actually were created to follow, pursue, and grow in both. The power, the gifts of the spirit, and the character and the fruit of the spirit. There's things in their lives, just like in our life, that God must correct. Because he's mad at us? No, because he loves us. Because he wants us to flourish and to thrive like he designed, like he intended. There is eternal life. There is good news. Because the gospel is not just moral advice. It is an announcement of an open heaven. The king has triumphed. The veil is torn. And heaven is open. Does that sound good to anybody else? All right, so how do we apply the message to our mess? How do, if there's a mess, and, and we've all got a certain degree of mess in our lives, if, if there's a mess, but there's a good news message, how do we apply the message to our mess? You start with the indicatives and identity before the imperatives and correction. You're like, what does that mean? 
If you remember from a couple months ago, we did this sermon where we talked about the indicatives versus the imperatives. How many of you remember? Just give me a show of hands. All right, let me, let me get backtrack us here. The indicatives, this is like putting on my word nerd, former English teacher hat here. Hello, everybody. The indicatives are the realities of life that are true to your character, identity, and very nature. This is the, 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 the who, the who. Those are the indicatives. The imperatives are, are calls or commands of what should be done. The idea is that the indicatives come first and they fuel the imperative, namely who you are before what you do. Generally tracking with that idea? All right, let me unpack it. This is what Paul, by the way, this is what he does in his discipleship of a church that is struggling and a mess. For any parents, you're like, how do I correct my kids? I want to raise, Nathi and Nate and, and Luke and Pam, they're up there with their babies and it got me all nostalgic remembering. When, and then they grow up, God help us. How do we, I wanted, I remember doing something like that. I want to raise my kids in a way where they know and experience God and, and I make disciples in my household, but how do I do it? Look at Paul right here. Point number one is this. If we want to apply the message to our mess, it is identity before instruction. Identity before instruction. Let's go back to verse two. Paul writes, he says, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. He begins before any of the instruction, before any of the correction, with a reminder of identity. You have been sanctified by God and his grace. You have been called. You are, there's that word again, saints. Friends, you need to know who you are. Paul begins with identity who Jesus is, what Jesus has done, and then as a result, who they are in him. Now, it's no surprise here, but this tracks with good cutting-edge brain science and neuropsychology. The most important component of identity is perceived identity. That's gonna be what's most vital. You could be, what could be true is, you could be really great at your profession, but if you think you're really bad at your profession, guess what's gonna happen eventually? You could be a part of a team, but if you feel like you're not a part of the team, guess what your actions are gonna inevitably lead to? Perceived identity is what's going to be most vital when it comes to your life, who you believe you are, which is why it's no accident that everybody in this world and everybody on the internet is trying to pin an identity on you. You ever thought about that? Like, why, why does everyone seem to be telling me who I am and what I need to do? Well, if I was the enemy of your soul, that would be the first place I would attack. Because if you don't know who you are, you, you will always operate, you will always live in light of your perceived identity and who you think you are. Even if someone tells you what to do. You ever been there? I know I should. I don't even want to. Why am I doing this stuff? Well, you probably need to move away from the instruction for a moment and get yourself back to identity. I'm a son of, wait a second. I'm a son of God. I'm a daughter of God. No, 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 I don't, I don't do that anymore. Ah, now you're on the right track. Go back to these Corinthian Christians. Remember this verb they created? Corinthiazo. Literally a verb, almost became a derogatory term for immoral people. Oh man, you know that guy, he's, he's just a Corinthian. It's not a coincidence that at this point, the church that is struggling the most has literally been handed an identity antithetical to who God says they are. 
And they're wrestling with this challenge of, I'm in the midst of a culture where I'm so tempted to think, well, man, I'm just a Corinthian. And Paul is, saying, Paul is actively contrasting Corinthian identity with Christian identity. He says, I need to remind you, you are a follower of Jesus, Christian Corinthian, not a Corinthian Christian. Get the order right. By the way, politics season is coming up. Let me just remind y'all before you get mad at me because it's not even here yet. You are not a liberal Christian or a Republican, conservative Christian. You are not a left-leaning Christian or a right-leaning Christian. You are a Christian who has political persuasions. That's fine. We love you. We have people all across the spectrum. You got to get the order right, though. Identity is paramount for them and for us. Nothing new under the sun. He says, listen, you're, you're not just a Corinthian. You're a Christian. You're a follower of Jesus. You're this word, little Messiah, little Mashiach, little, little Christ. You're just like your Jesus. Friend, you need to know who you are before you'll ever step in what you're supposed to do. I was reminded this week, by the way, this is extremely applicable for any parents in the room or online or in Guyana. I was reminded this week of the power of identity. I'm gonna brag on my boy for a little bit if you'll permit me, and if you won't permit me, I'm gonna do it anyways because I got the mic. Um, our son Liam, uh, last Sunday, I had a text from my wife in the family chat. She said, oh my gosh, this was so cute. Liam made me breakfast this morning. This is last week. I have a picture of it here on the screen. Now, if you've heard the stories of Liam, the, the lore that surrounds him, uh, this probably makes sense for you of the breakfast that he would make. Um, now, now, my wife's response uh, was, obviously, she looked at this and she was like, candy for breakfast, are you kidding me? Do you know what that will do to your teeth, Liam? Really? I mean, she, he's got a whole lime there. Like, a whole lime. Just like shoved it on the cup. Didn't even, just shoved it on the cup. This glass jar, that's glass, by the way, was up on a shelf. He went and got the jar on the shelf. Then he went outside and clipped off a whole bushes, a whole row of bushes to get some flowers. And, and so we were like, Liam, what? So, so you can probably imagine our first response as parents, right? It's what we would all would do. We are like, Liam, thanks so much. Are you kidding me? The candy, the glass, you could have died. No, we didn't do that. Because that's not what you want to do when you watch the identity of a kind, caring child begin to come out. And my wife, because she's an amazing parent, thank God it was her, not me, and an amazing disciple, just jumped on the identity. She's like, oh my gosh, I could have killed him. But most importantly, I said, Liam, thank you, buddy. He said, yeah, mom, I, I knew you guys we were running a little bit late, and I, I just wanted to make sure that, that you would have breakfast. Now, there is some correction to be had here. Can we all amen? Like, this is not the winning breakfast for life, right? Like, there's, there's some instruction that has to happen. But how foolish would we be? We would all know, man, what horrible parenting if you jump to instruction before affirming identity. And God is a great parent. He's the best. He's the best. Paul knows, I, I'm gonna have to correct some things. There is some candy they've been eating for breakfast. There are some glass jars that they should not be reaching for their own safety and protection. But before I get to the instruction, I've gotta remind them of their identity because you will always live in light of the identity you believe about yourself. I need to remind them of who they are. See, it's identity before instruction and it is indicatives before imperatives. The mandates always follow the message with God. 
They always follow the message. The open heaven, the the moral of the gospel of the story, the good news of Jesus is that the open heaven has made previously impossible things now possible. The door to heaven is now open. Paul writes, he says, I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus. He says, church, good news. I know you're a mess, but let's start with the good news. Good news is that there's now grace given to you. God has lavished his grace on you. Grace is God's riches at Christ's expense. There's a little acronym for you to remember it by. The goodness, the grace, the mercy of God. He's made it available to you. It's amazing grace. Verse five, he says that in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge. By the way, they are absolutely not living this right now. But is it true? Does God give you his grace? Does God give you everything you need pertaining to life and godliness? Is that empirically true? Heaven, yes. And so Paul reminds this church in the midst of their mess of the truth of who they are in him. And he encourages them. Look at verse seven. Like, you'll see it. As we go on in the series, you're like, you'll, this message will hit harder and harder. I mean, we got, we got dude, he's calling out dudes later on. He's like, hey, you stole your dad's wife. That's just weird and wrong in all of the ways. I mean, literally, that's one of his accusations. Like, they're a, they're a mess. But he starts with encouragement. Verse seven, he says, hey, you guys are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus. This church has a lot of things wrong, but they at least got a few things right. And Paul is grasping for straws to fight or finger him out. He's like, hey, you guys have a bunch of gifts in operation. They're horrible at it, but they're in operation. This is great. You're not lacking in any gift. He affirms the one thing he can while he's going to make clear there are a lot of things that need to be addressed and changed. And it's a sobering reminder for us because what we see in the Corinthians is that they are far more gifted than they are godly. It's one of the heartbreaking and disenfranchising realities of leadership in our modern culture. We, we live in a culture where leaders are almost venerated to the point of un, unrealistic expectations and it is especially poignant and heartbreaking when it comes to spiritual leaders and pastors. Pray for your pastor, I feel great, I went on sabbatical, I feel amazing. But the propensity is so dangerous for humans to be far more gifted than they are godly. It was one of the beautiful realities of my dad when my father passed and we got to dig into the back door of his life. He was far better in private than he was even in public. It's like, man, he had character. These Corinthians are in a danger spot because they're great on the outside with the power and the gifts and the miraculous and yet their character could not hold their giftedness, it's a dangerous reality. Jesus talks about this. Remember, he says, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, didn't I? And then fill in the spiritual blanks. Cast out demons in your name, speak in tongues, do all these miracles, signs and wonders. And he's gonna say, depart from me, I never knew you. They had all the external stuff going right, but the inside was a mess. This is the challenge with the Pharisees. There's clearly a distinction between character and anointing or giftedness. It's possible to have one and not the other. And the message of Corinthians is that we need and should want and pursue both. Both. Made possible by Jesus, his grace. This is the gospel. See, the gospel, it's not just moral advice, what you should do, what you need to do, what you must do. That's part of it, but the gospel is far greater. It is an announcement, a good news announcement, an eternal announcement of an hope in heaven. By the way, I hope we all can realize how easy it is to fall into the trap of behavior modification alone. 
like how easy it is to just address the, the things we see on the outside, how effective, dangerously effective fear and shame are at motivating external change while leaving the heart unchanged. This is what religion does, and it's very effective until it's not. So Paul begins with identity. Because while behavior matters, God is fundamentally looking at what? The heart. He's looking at the heart. Here's the application point. Here's what I want us considering. The next time you find yourself struggling with fill in the blank. Everyone's got different struggles. The church in Corinth had their struggles. You fill in the blank. The next time you find yourself struggling with lust, struggling with pornography, struggling with envy, struggling with jealousy, struggling with fear, the next time you find yourself struggling with whatever that thing might, might be that is tempted to drift you away from the calling and the destiny God has for your life, here's my application point. Remember who you are first. And then from that place, redirect how you live. Remember who you are, that's good. Remember who you are and then redirect how you live. They both must come into play, but the order matters immensely. Remember who you are, then redirect how you live. By the way, so many applications for this. This, this applies personally, this applies in parenting, this applies in disciple making, helping other people. You parent, you want to parent out of identity. Remember who you are. You want to disciple people, starting with identity. We want to lead in your, in your space, in your career, from a place of identity. Paul reminds these flawed, off-track Corinthians in need of correction, you have been sanctified. You are called saints. You do have access. The point being, if we reminded people more of who they are, we would not have to tell them so much what to do. He starts with identity. I'm not sure if there's a more savage place in all of the world than South Florida condo boards. Any of you have the condo commandos? Can I get a testimony? You're like, oh God, help us. Like the, the, uh, you know, the, the cam, the maintenance, the, the uh, association that's overactive. They finally got a little bit of power and it went really big to their heads. I have a church, we have a member of our church family who was telling me a story and they're part of one of these sort of toxic condo boards and and there was a situation going down in this condo board where somebody that was on the board was having some health challenges and they really could no longer appropriately fulfill their duties on the board. Um, but rather than handle it like normal humans, it's a condo board. And so they were like posting public letters of absolute savage attack and it was horrible, like horrible. Corinthians, horrible, like so bad. And this member of our church was saying they, they went up to one of the ladies who was on the board and and she just started doing exactly this sermon, speaking identity. You know, so-and-so, I've, I've watched the way you care for people when they get sick in our condo. And, and I've seen the way when someone's on the outside, when someone's new in the community, I've seen the way you welcome them. You know what? You are a kind person. To be clear, they were, they were living anything but kind in this moment. She said, you are a kind person. Lo and behold, the next board meeting comes. It's beginning to get savage. It's starting to get riled up. They're starting to get, and this lady goes, hey, hold on a second. Pauses the meeting, says, let's just, have a, let's just have a sidebar. We can do that within the rules of order. Okay, let's just have a sidebar. Goes on the side. Make a little private decision with the lady that needed to be realistically removed or at least put on pause from her duties. Came back and they said, we're gonna make some shifts here and because of the current situation and we're gonna make some pause, everything's gonna be good, let's move forward. <laughs> the whole thing changed. 
And she came up to the member of our church a few days later. And, you know, word travels. She said, did you hear how the meeting went? And the person in our church was like, yeah, I did. That's what she said. She said, I did it. Aren't you proud of me? I was like, man, that'll preach. We're all longing to be acknowledged for who we know we are. For who we who it is, we, we feel it on the inside. Like God has created each one of us with gifts for the purpose of redemptive realities in our world when we're acting like savage, horrible, mean, unkind people. We know it's wrong and yet, and yet we feel trapped and we're all waiting for someone, someone to say like Simba, remember who you are. <laughs> so that we can turn around and say, I totally forgot, but I did it. Aren't you proud of me? And guess what his answer always is? Yes. Yes. At the end of his letter, Paul brings it all back, really at the end of this section. These struggling Christians in an exceptionally immoral culture, he brings them back to the why behind it all. He reminds them of the big picture. He reminds them of the target. Look at what it says here in verse seven. So that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. You're like, what does that mean? Revealing of the day of the Lord Jesus. If you remember the beginning, he says the day of the Lord. What's the day of the Lord? This is the truth he's reminding them of. And they talked about it a lot in the early church and we talked about it almost never now. Jesus is coming back. And when he does, yeah, this is good. You amen that. Some of you are like, praise God. Some of you are like, not yet. I need to get married first. All right, whatever it is. But Jesus is coming back. Just keep it real. Jesus is coming back. And when he does, nothing will be hidden from his sight because nothing is ever hidden from his sight. And when he does, he will right every wrong. And when he does, he will wipe every tear from our eyes. And when he does, he will make it fully and completely on earth as it is in heaven, no longer dimly as in a foggy mirror, but clear as day and face to face. And Jesus is coming back. And Paul says, live in light of that. Live in light of that. The day is coming and it's not just gonna be about what you were able to manifest and fake it till you make it and praise God, brother, and yell at your kids on the way. It's not gonna be about the externals. It's gonna be about what's happening on the inside because man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. And Paul is reminding them, hey, listen, there's a lot of drama in your cultural context and there's a lot of temptations and things pulling you, but remember who you are. There is a king who's coming back and you live and love and work for him. So live in light of that reality. See, the gospel, it's not just moral advice, but it is an eternal announcement. And here is the great news. Here is the game-changing announcement that stirs hope in the soul of Corinthian Christians and American Christians and Guyanese Christians. Here is the game-changing announcement, verse eight, who will sustain Jesus Christ, who will sustain you till the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus, because God is faithful. They're a mess. They've got so many issues. We're a mess. We got so many issues. And yet his reminder from the very beginning, lest they think they need to make it happen, is that Jesus is the one who makes it happen. 
Jesus is the hero. Jesus is the one who will save the day. God is faithful. He is the one who is going to do it. He is able. They are a mess, but Paul has strong confidence. God is faithful. And if you're listening this morning in the room, online, in Guyana, and you feel stuck and you feel trapped in cycles of sin and failure, here is the reminder. God is able and God is faithful. Ask him, call out to him, lean into his grace, his strength and power to help set you free. I get to do a lot of different things, but one of my favorite things is to celebrate people as they flourish. A couple weeks ago, I was talking with a member of our church family who had been stuck and and battling addiction in a very serious, almost deathly way. And and we were texting back and forth and they said, listen, I'm celebrating today two years of freedom. Yeah, what seemed impossible. Two years of freedom. I was like, man, that's amazing. Come on. And we're going back and forth. And it was just this beautiful moment. We're having this conversation. I said, man, how's it been? You know, it's it's not easy. And obviously I have things set up because I know who I used to be. And I know the things I used to do. And you want to assess your triggers. And you got a good counselor and your thing. And and he's going through all the stuff. He said, man, John, I got to be honest with you. I've tried different programs, I've tried different facilities, and all of them have been helpful to a certain degree, and all of them have been used by God to a certain degree. He said, but I've never experienced what I did when I fully surrendered to Jesus. He said, John, when I think about what I used to do and those things and that person, he said, John, it's it's just not who I am anymore. What happened? The gospel happened. It's almost like what God said about humanity and our realities is actually true, that if anyone is in Christ, they become a new creation. All the old things pass away and all things become new. You're like, John, if if God only knew, he does. Well, John, if there was ever hope for me, there is. Why? Because Jesus can take dead things and bring them to life. Because Jesus can take lost things and help them become found. Because nothing is out of his grasp. And the God who called you, who might be calling you right now, he's faithful. He's faithful. Listen to me, friend. If you're under the sound of my voice now or you're watching a year from now, are you weary? Are you losing hope? Do you feel trapped, stuck? Here's the announcement. Jesus came to set you free and he can. And if you let him, he will. Are you feeling forgotten, unloved, unseen? Here's the announcement. Jesus suffered and died because he sees you and he loves you that much. You said, John, if I I, I just knew that there was someone who still cared, if I just knew that there was a possibility for me, if I just knew that my ship hadn't sailed and I'm not too far gone, hear the announcement and it is true from heaven and I pray that you hear it on earth. He who promised is faithful and you are never too far gone. His arm is not too short to reach out and rescue. So what do I do? You ask him. The beautiful hope-stirring kickoff to Corinthians is no matter how big of a mess you've made, he's able to save, deliver, clean, and restore. The rule, the reign, the realities of heaven are available in your life now. Heaven is 
open. And all you need to do is invite him in as king. Let's pray together. You can bow your head just for a moment of quiet and privacy. Quiet and privacy, that's it. Jesus, I'm praying that right now you would begin to move by your spirit on our hearts. Lord, there are so few environments where we can pause and generally consider the health of our souls. We think about physical health. We think about now even emotional health. But Lord, when it comes to the health of our souls, would you speak to our hearts by your spirit and call us to mind change, to repentance, to metanoia. You can keep your head bowed for just a moment. I just wanna give you a space to reflect. If you're here this morning, if you're in Guyana, if you're watching online and you realize that your life is a mess. It's in need of change. And maybe in faith, you would be willing to make the chance of saying, I think, I think God could do it. I think Jesus is the answer. If you want to experience open heaven, respond to the good news of the announcement of the gospel, the good news that the King and his kingdom are available in your life. Invite him in, even right now as king. Specifically all week long, what I had in my heart is there might be people or peoples in the room online watching and you're like, I've, I've tried this before. I've, I've, I've prayed a prayer. I've, I've done a thing, but you've invited him in as a consultant. You've invited him in and said, okay, well, Jesus, I'm gonna do X, Y, and Z. If you can help me out a little bit and then I'll kind of take it over and I'll, I'll weigh your opinion and I'll make my decision. That does not work, friends. Jesus, if he is not Lord of all, is not Lord at all. The only option for open heaven is to invite the king and his kingdom in and is a rightful place as king of your life. Benevolent, omniscient, omnipotent ruler and the father who loves you more than anyone ever has or ever will. If you want to invite him in as king, just tell him, Jesus, I'm a mess, but I'm yours something along the lines of, there's no magic formula, you can pray it in your own words, but something along the lines of, Jesus, I, I hear you speaking to me. I hear you calling me and, and my life is yours. You're not just some consultant in my life. And then I make the call. You're the CEO. You're the king. You're the Lord. I wanna follow your lead. I wanna speak to another group this morning before we close. Maybe you're here and and at some point you began a journey with Jesus and you know it, you know your saints, you hear that word and you're like, I know that's me, but that feels so far and so distant from who I've been. And you know you've drifted from your true identity. Here's my encouragement to you this morning or wherever you're listening and watching. Come back, line up, repent. This word repentance, it's a beautiful, hope-filled word. It's changing your mind to agree with God. Even right now, you can ask him, God, help me to live from that true identity of who I am in you. I am your son. I am your daughter. I am your child that you love. You have plans to prosper me and not to harm me, plans to give me a hope and a future. God, I have not, I have been living like I am an orphan, but I know I'm not. You've adopted me as your child and you care and you're involved. Help me to live like that. Anxiety does not have to be my future. Fear does not have to be my future. I don't have to be stuck in these things. Lord, help me to live out of who I am in you, who you say I am. 